The Friday Reporter launched in March of 2021 as a conversation with today's journalists and has expanded to include newsmakers, lawmakers, image makers, and just about anybody who's in the news or the news adjacent business. The podcast is in partnership with PR Daily and is part of the Big Wig Podcast Network. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button to make sure you've got ready access to the latest conversation. And if you've got an idea for a great guest, don't forget to send your ideas to Lisa at FridayReporter.com. Well, hello, and thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. As I told you a couple weeks back, this show has now expanded its reach into talking not only to journalists, but also people that are in the newsmaking business. And today's guest is Tim Murtaugh, who is here to join us and talk about not only his own experience, uh, having been a spokesperson for a presidential campaign, a spokesperson for a political party, spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, and has written a really compelling book that is due out in April of next year. So thank you. Thank you, Tim, so much for being with me today. Lisa, I appreciate it very much. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on. And I, and I, and I think we're going to have a pretty good time. Yeah, I hope so, too. And I, I know that our, our paths have crossed, uh, not specifically, but certainly we have been in the same spaces, probably worked from the same desks at different times in our Maybe career. Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> so yes. And, and I, I've heard your name many times over the course of the years. So same, uh, same. it's nice, nice to finally get together and meet you. Yeah, you too. So, Tim, you've got to tell me, um, how does how does how does a guy uh, get started in politics uh, as, as your career started? Tell me a little bit about your background and how, how you fell backwards into this business like the rest of us. I, you know, it sort of was. I mean, everybody gets into it by their own path, right? And um, the way that I did it is that I started out as a reporter. I was a radio reporter first right out of college and then got a job as a TV reporter in local TV in Charlottesville, Virginia. And when I was there, the uh, local member of Congress went and got himself elected governor of Virginia. And the t- my TV station elected to open a full-time bureau as a local guy. And they elected to open a full-time bureau at the state capitol in Richmond. I was in Charlottesville. The yeah. TV station was there. And so I moved to Richmond to cover the new governor, who was a guy by the name of George Allen, mm-hmm. uh, who was a, an extremely successful governor. And I got to know him very well while I was covering him every single day. And I knew who, all of his team and everything. And then when he was done being governor, you know, in Virginia, you can't run for reelection. It's a one term. You can be governor more than once, but never consecutively. Right. It's the only state that does that. So everyone knew when he was done being governor, that he was going to run for the U.S. Senate against an incumbent named Chuck Robb, um, LBJ's son-in-law, Chuck mm-hmm. Robb. And so I approached him and I said, I want to work on your campaign. I want to be your press secretary. And um, they gave me a shot. And that was in the year 2000. And uh, here I am. And I've been doing campaigns and politics of some nature ever since. Isn't that so cool, though? And like the one thing that I always admire so much is the journalists that take that leap and step into politics, because it can't be easy making that transition. I'm sure that your friends in the in the bureau were saying, what are you thinking? Why are you why are you doing that? How was, how yeah, was that and received? All, yeah, and all my uh, all my colleagues at the state, I was the state capitol bureau guy, and so I worked with a lot of reporters from different outlets from different markets all over the state, and they all looked at me like, you know, I had I had joined the other team, I yeah. had jumped the fence, I <laughs> I had gone to, I had gone to the dark side. <laughs> And it was, you know, it was a difficult position, but I got to the point where I thought local, in my position anyway, I thought local TV news was just a little bit silly because you had to go on the air and everything, there was so much show business involved in everything that you did on the air. And there was, you had to be an, be an expert on something every single day. 
and be able to talk about it cogently for two minutes at 6 p.m. And, right. and at 6.04 p.m., you could forget that you ever knew it, you know, and <laughs> tomorrow like, you'd be an like expert comms. on something else. Wouldn't you, you say know? it's a lot like communications? <laughs> well, it <laughs> We're is, experts yeah. experts in mean, a lot of things. and You can have a faulty short-term memory and it doesn't even really matter. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to know that stuff from yesterday. Um, so they looked at me like, what are you going to do? And I was aware that I was going to work. I was leaving journalism. I was going to work in Republican politics. Right. And I'm not naive. And I knew that if I did that, there wasn't any coming back. No. That door does not there is not that door does not swing both ways. Right. If you are a Republican. Some Democrats can go and then come back. That's and, right. And so on and so on and so forth. But that wasn't that wasn't going to be available to me. And I just decided, you know, it's time for something new. I'm going to do politics. I'm I'm led to believe people can do this for a career, right? Yeah. And so uh, that's what I did. And I've never looked back. And I got to say, it's been on balance. It's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. I can't, I, I ever made. I can't, I'm not going to claim that every moment has been awesome. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I was the communications director on the Trump 2020 campaign. We had a few moments that were not so great. Um, so, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't regret it for even for a second. I, no. I love what I do. And, uh, and I'm able to be a consultant now. So I'm working for a lot of different candidates and, and private sector uh, clients as well. And, and, you know, I know you, you're sort of in the same line of work yeah. uh, in many ways. And so I think it's great. I always tell people when they ask, you know, how do you like it? I always say, hey, man, it beats working. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. And it's also so much of what you learn on the campaign and you learn working in government as a spokesperson or communicator for these electeds is that it really does transfer and translate to how you advise clients that aren't necessarily political, but want to influence the political process. Like the two definitely go very closely hand to hand. They do very much. I mean, I always try to tell people this, you know, I can, because I've been working in politics and, and trying to sell candidates to the, to the public. Uh, it's very much like uh, selling a bottle of ketchup more, you know, <laughs> a political candidate that probably would not like to be compared to a bottle of ketchup. But the principles, you're right. The principles are the same. You know, yeah. I can probably make a pretty good argument why this bottle of ketchup is better than that bottle of ketchup. And, and you should buy this bottle of ketchup. And I can also tell you all of the things that are wrong with that other bottle of ketchup that you should never buy, <laughs> you know, and it's so it's it's very, it's very similar Absolutely. To, to politics. So you worked you know. for the governor in Virginia and then and then where did your path take you from there? Oh, gosh. Let's see. Uh, well, that's when I went to the RNC when mm -hmm. after um, that Senate race in 2001, the the new governor of Virginia, Jim Gilmore, became chairman of the RNC. And I went right. up to work with him. Uh, and then his term as chairman ended. He had a little disagreement with uh, the Bush White House. And mm -hmm. so he did. He he left uh, the RNC fairly early. And I went and I worked for the attorney general of Virginia for a while. He then subsequently ran for governor against a guy named Tim Kaine, who yep. is currently in the U.S. Senate. So I can, I think you can probably guess how our race for governor against Tim Kaine went. <laughs> and that was way back in 2005. He he won. And then I've, I've been, I've bounced from congressional races and Senate races. I worked at the Republican Governors Association. I worked for a variety of candidates in different states. And I worked on Capitol Hill, worked for a member of Congress named Lou Barletta from Pennsylvania. Really great guy. Yeah. I think anybody who wants to be involved in, in politics or political communications absolutely should work on Capitol Hill uh, if, if they can. It's totally a really agree. great experience. I don't ever want to do it again. No, but <laughs> it's it. a young man's game, Tim. <laughs> yes, that is a young person's game. That's for sure. Uh, and then I went to work. I got a job in the Trump administration. Uh, I had known some people who had worked for Sonny Perdue when he was the governor of Georgia and when he ran the Republican Governors Association. A guy named Nick Ayers was a, a friend, and I had worked with him when when he was executive director of the RGA. And so 
the day before Trump's inauguration, news broke that Sonny Perdue was going to be the nominee for Secretary of Agriculture. Right. And I texted Nick and I said, I sure would love to work for Governor Perdue. And next thing you know, I'm sitting across the table from Sonny Perdue and I went to work at the Department of Agriculture and I knew nothing, nothing about agriculture <laughs> when I walked in there. Nothing. Isn't nothing. that I'm always true though? Yeah. I'm from Philadelphia <laughs> and I've worked in Richmond and you know Washington, D.C. What do yeah. I know about agriculture? But like you said, the, the principles translate. It really doesn't matter what, you know, and so our audience was a different audience and that's fine. It's the farmers of, of uh, this country and, and you can figure out how to message to them. And yeah. that's what we did. And then two years after that, uh, of an old friend of mine from a different race way back when, who was also in the Bush or I'm sorry, in the, in the Trump White House, uh, called me and said, hey, did you have any thoughts? Did you ever think about joining the reelect? Mm. meaning the 2020 campaign, mm -hmm. Trump re-election. And I said, actually, I have thought about it because campaigns are what I do. And they hired me as the comms director. I started in January, February of 2019 and worked there for 24 months. I was a wow. long-standing wow. communion. Trump is... world, a communications director doesn't last for two years very often. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so that's, I, I mean, that, I think that's, that speaks volumes for the way you do your work though, too. I mean, you must be a, you must be a friend maker in that business, able to work with lots of different people and on lots of different issues. I like to think so. Yeah. It wasn't always the case, which I think we're going to get to event in a minute here to talk about my book. I, I, I didn't always behave in such manners, but right. um, we, uh, yeah, I, I like to think so. And then after that, it's been, I've been in business for myself uh, since then, since 2020 and um, since January of 21, in fact, and uh, you know, I've worked for a variety of candidates and private sector clients and um, it's good. It's good. The, the previous 24 years or so have have served me well yeah. and with where I am now. Talk to me, Tim, before we get to the book, because we will get there. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, so much of our world, you and I got started right around the same time. Our careers are, are quite similar. And so I have my own point of view, but you actually have been sort of having been on the campaign and having seen this sort of firsthand. Tell me a little bit about how you think communications has changed over the course of our career. Um, it was obviously quite oh, a bit different when we started. It was terribly different when we started. I mean, when I first, I mentioned George Allen, and in that Senate race in the year 2000 in Virginia, yes, we had cell phones, but um, there really wasn't very much of an internet to speak of. Um, YouTube didn't exist. There was no Twitter or X or, you know, I don't think Facebook didn't come around until I don't know what year. So, I mean, it was none of the big social media sites, which are used heavily for communications today existed yet. And in, there are large parts of Virginia that are extremely rural and so our cell phones, this was, remember, this is 23 years ago. Our cell phones were worthless. Right. <laughs> Depending on, there, there would be, if we were in far Southwest Virginia, for example, we might be two whole days without cell phone service, you know? And so we had to make decisions. There was no checking in with headquarters back in Richmond on the fly. You had, and you're out there with the candidate, you confer with the candidate, you make a decision on the fly and you report back to headquarters after the fact. Right. Hey, by the way, you, you should know that this is what we just did. The, <laughs> the governor, we called him the governor because mm -hmm. he had been governor, wasn't a senator yet. The governor said X, Y, and Z uh, two days ago, it'll be in the weekly paper about down here tomorrow and I'll, I'll photocopy it and fax it to you. Right. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the way it went. And so now I know I sound like a terribly geezerish boomer talking about 
<laughs> having to do that. And no, but I, but you've just described my own communications career. I mean, the, the, no. the getting up early and clipping the paper and, and, and making sure that it was adhered properly to the legal size notepad and making sure it's all photocopied for all the New Jersey senators that I worked for and on their desk before they arrived for whatever it was they were coming to town for. Uh, communication has been entirely transformed by technology and social media. Oh, yeah. Totally. I be- absolutely. Um, not only that, it's that, you know, just the rolling deadlines that everybody has. It, right. Back back then, it used to be, if you're a reporter, if it was a TV reporter, you know, they had a deadline of, oh, you know, you got to get it to them by four o'clock or so because they had to get it on the air by six o'clock and in rare cases, maybe five o'clock, right? right. So that was your deadline. The newspaper right. would have a deadline of, you know, late in the afternoon, six, they could push it a little bit because they were worried about the morning paper, but I mean, now everybody's when when you say what's your deadline, they say, well, now, right now, you know? yeah, absolutely. I was <laughs> right. explaining to somebody the other day that I they were saying that they were very productive in the morning. I am not very productive in the morning. I get I really turn it on about four o'clock, and I swear it's because over the course of the last twenty five years, four o'clock was when deadlines had hit. Journalists mm-hmm. were then done with me, and I could get back to doing the writing or whatever the creative was that I needed for the next day. So like four o'clock you know, people start calling me and asking for things. The phone is off. I've got to focus because that's when I really get productive. And I swear it's because of that deadline, but now it's no longer the case, you know? So you really kind of have to be on all the time. It is, it is. And yeah, I find it's funny. You mentioned that I find there's a lot of writing that I have to do press releases or op-eds or, you know, other sorts of things where I need uh, an hour or two hours uninterrupted to be able to, to get through it and knock it out because there's, for me, there, and I write a column for the Washington Times also about politics and the media every two weeks. And and so if I'm like halfway through a column and I get interrupted, you know, I was in a groove. I may not be able to get back to the thought that I was on right, right. when I was writing it. You know, if I get interrupted by a phone call, it's just so doing large chunks of writing in the middle of the business day, I find to be very difficult because I get hard. interrupted all the time. And so I do a lot of my stuff after my two, I have two young boys, five and six, mm. after they're in bed at night. Um, so say starting at nine o'clock, that's, that's, I, I work from like nine to midnight or nine to 1 AM a lot of, a lot of nights Yeah, because I know my phone won't ring. Yeah, no, absolutely. Although I have had clients who live in Alaska, which uh screws up the whole thing, (laughs) you know, they call at 2 AM and say, Oh, I'm really sorry. I know it's late where you are. Yeah, but you're, you're still doing it. (laughs) (laughs) That apology falls kind of empty when it, when they're like, and oh, by the way, here are the three things I need you actually to do for me. Right. You realize you're six hours behind me, right? (laughs) All right. So swing hard in case you hit it. Uh, Mm. I want to know, is this because you have a, a grandfather, you have a grandfather story that is super impressive for those people who are Pittsburgh people probably know who Danny Murtaugh is, but was there any, was there any uh, consideration as you were coming up with the headline or the, uh, the title for the book? Uh, did that have anything to do with, uh, with your famous uh, ancestors or uh, was that just something that you uh, came up with separately? Well, in a way it does have to do with that. I get, as you mentioned, I came from uh I do. I come from a baseball family, my grandfather, and I can't claim credit for my grandfather's success. Uh, <laughs> I think he, he probably had something to do with it. I say so. Um, he was the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates, Danny Murtaugh, and um, he won the World Series twice in 1960 and 1971. He's been uh, on the ballot for the Baseball Hall of Fame a few times and has never quite gotten the requisite number of uh, votes to get in the Hall of Fame, but he's widely regarded as one of the best baseball managers of his era. And, you know, I was when I was a kid, I'm the oldest of six grandchildren that he had and 
I have uh, some clear memories of him. He died when I was seven. Okay. Uh, but I do remember him and I have, of the grandchildren, I have the clearest memories. And so I've always been very proud of him. Grew up in a baseball family, have loved baseball. Uh, and that's a baseball reference, the title, Swing Hard in Case You Hit It, uh, because my father, uh, who is the son of my grandfather, mm -hmm. uh, was also a baseball guy and played minor league baseball and was a manager in the minor leagues up to the oh, AAA level, okay. which is one one rung below the major leagues. So right. he made it up to AAA, not, not to the big leagues like his dad. Mm -hmm. And so that'll tell you that the baseball talent gets watered down by generation <laughs> in my family, you know, a little bit. I, I never had a chance. My kids will never have no shot, probably. Um, but... Every day when I would leave the house to go to baseball practice, uh, my dad would say, hey, swing hard in case you hit it. Okay. Um, you know, just joking. Like, you know, like, hey, oh, that's good advice. Thanks, dad. Of swing course. hard in case you hit it. But it occurs to me that it's actually kind of simple but profound. And that is actually excellent advice for everything you do in life. Yeah. Right. Swing hard in case you hit it. You never know. Yeah. Um, some days you might make contact. So you better have some some uh, you, you might as well have put the effort in in case it works out. Right. You know. Right. So, so talk to me, talk to me a little bit about the book. Cause I know this is a, this book is to me, I can't wait to read it. I've already got it on order. I'm, I'm ready to, to dive oh, in, thank you. but, um, it's really raw. I mean, it really took a lot of courage to write this book, Tim, from my point of view. And I want you to tell me a little bit about how you came to decide that you wanted to put this out there. Well, uh, it's, there, there's two reasons why I wanted to write the book and this is what it's about in a thumbnail. This is, this is the elevator pitch. It's, it's half about, the 2020 election and a lot of the experiences I had along the way, traveling the country and different things, my experiences with the media and all that stuff uh, as the communications director on President Trump's uh, re-election campaign in 2020. That's half of it. And the other half is my decades long struggle to quit drinking. I was a, 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 in desperate alcoholism and I was facing a situation where if things had not broken exactly the right way for me in, inside the legal system, I was going to go to jail for about three months and because wow. of alcohol related things and it would have been the end of everything yeah um, i had already been through a whole lot professionally because of drinking along the way i've lost jobs and uh, had been in jail a couple of times but i was facing a, a much longer stretch in jail where i certainly would have been without a job and i would have lost not only a job but a career yeah. uh, and uh, my new wife at the time uh, who was brand new and um, my friends and family were about fed up with me and you know, if, if that would have been the end of everything. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I was not going to get out from under that, the threat of going to jail for three months, unless I quit drinking. Yeah. And so uh, that was 2015, May mm -hmm. 16th, 2015 is the last drink I took it, that day is that I got, I got arrested for drunk in public. Uh, and if I had been convicted of that, I would, I, I would have had to have served 80 days of suspended jail time that was hanging over my head wow. uh, because I was still on probation for my second DUI. Right. Wow. And so uh, I tell, that's the other half of the book. I tell that story and how I got out of it. In fact, the book opens, there's a description of a Trump rally in 2019, the week before Christmas, when it's the same night we were in Michigan and it was the same night he was being impeached for the first time. And just how otherworldly it was to be with the president at a rally at the same time that he's being impeached back in Washington. Yeah. So it opens on that scene. And then sort of the co-opening scene is me waking up in jail in May of 2015 knowing that I was potentially in a really, really, really big world of bad news for myself yeah, and never, never dreaming at that moment that less than four years later, uh, I would be working in the Trump administration and flying on air force one going from waking up in jail to being on air force one in less than four years. It's, 
it's I I, I can't believe it happened. That's remarkable. It's just it's remarkable, and it's something that, I mean, God, you, I mean, I can't imagine making that choice and making that. Dis- I mean, obviously, it was a it was a life decision. It was a decision that was critical for you, and mm-hmm. um, but also too, probably something that caused you a lot of your own personal pain because you're out in the public, you're defending a, a, a president who's running for reelection and the media probably took, they took that opportunity to maybe try to highlight some of that. Is that, is that right? Well, that was another motivation for writing the book. It's uh, the media. I wouldn't blame it on the media. In fact, um, I, I think I owe a, actually a debt of gratitude to certain members of the media uh, during that period, because as you know, in politics, there are things called opposition researchers. Yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure which firm it was that that was doing this, but I'm not 100% certain. So I won't say who it was, who I think it was, but there are a variety of opposition research firms on both sides, Republican and Democrat, right. who dig up all the dirt they can find about their political opponents. Most of the time they focus on the candidates and the incumbent people running for office, but sometimes they focus on staff. Mm-hmm. And the, I had just been hired as the comms director for Donald Trump's campaign. And then these Democrat opposition researchers looked into it. Like I said, just thought, well, let's check him out. And they found my uh, police record, which mm-hmm. is there for everyone to find. It's sure. uh, it's a public record, obviously. Right. And uh, a couple of DUIs and I don't even know how many um, you know minor offenses, drunk, public intoxication, those those sorts of things. And so they had my whole dossier, I guess you would call it, the opposition research file on me. And they shopped it around to, I don't, I don't know how many reporters they tried, but I know that about a half a dozen of them contacted me and were threatening to write the story unless I had a good reason for them not to. Wow. So I had to, over and over again during the late winter, early spring of 2019, I had to have these conversations with these reporters and try to prevent them from writing a story about how Donald Trump has had just hired a guy to be comms director who's got two DUIs and a bunch of other alcohol-related offenses on his record. They wanted to attack me to hurt the candidate. Of course, well, obviously yeah. That's, yeah. that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And I, we were luckily enough, we were I was we were always able to talk the reporters out of writing it. Like it's not it's not relevant. Relevant. This is not a current ongoing thing. These are right. things well in the past. They have nothing to do with the campaign. If the threshold is, does anyone who gets hired for a campaign have a have a record of some kind? then you better be prepared to be investigating a whole lot of people because you think I'm the only one around Washington no. who has a DUI. No, you're going to be busy. If this is your, if this is your <laughs> new line of stories, you're going to have your hands full right. because there's a ton of guys out there, men, women, just yeah. like me. Absolutely. And they're right. like, yeah, you kind of, I mean, Washington DC of all places, it's a drinking town. You Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. So. There are three, there are three major food groups. I mean, it's drinking, smoking and pizza for, for political yeah, right. kids. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Those are the food groups and everything else was sort of secondary. Um, mm-hmm. But no, I, and I appreciate that so much. I mean, I guess, and that is a really cool perspective that you could actually help reporters understand why you didn't think it was relevant. Also, it wasn't current event. They weren't current events. Um, something you yourself no. had combated and sort of dealt with and, and moved on from. Um, and I want to say one, one thing, while we're, since we're talking about that, there, there were two waves of this. There, the first one, I wasn't over the second one wasn't a wave, but in 2019 and in, in, right after I got hired, which was February. So in February and March, a bunch of these inquiries came and these were from major publications, yeah. you know, ones that people know about and some of them that you associate with Washington, D.C. and others not in Washington, D.C., but major media publications. Mm-hmm. So that happened that we managed to avoid all of those. And Brad, Park, I had told them everyone inside the campaign and Sonny Purdue, they all knew yeah. about my past. I had told them up front. Sure. And Brad Parscale, the campaign manager, um, I said, you better run this past the president before you hire me. 
And he came back to me and he said, listen, the president, he loves a good re redemption story. You know, he blames alcohol for the death of his brother. Yeah. Uh, he himself has never had a drink, but uh, he loves a, a good comeback story. So mm -hmm. don't worry about a thing. He's got your back. If they, if they attack you, he's got your back. But nonetheless, I didn't want the stories in the paper anyway. Yeah, so sure. managed to get, get through all that. And then in 2020, the New York Post had written a story about various members of the Biden family and how they had had brushes with the law, credit card fraud, and, and different DUIs, of course, and drinking lots of other stuff, but not just Hunter Biden, but some other you know extended family members. And, and by and large, they went to court and they got suspended sentences. They got some fines. They got dismissals. They all kind of, not, not, nobody really ever paid a price. There was never any accountability for any of them. And right. so that was the New York Post story. We didn't have anything to do with the printing of that story. But our war room on the campaign wanted to take that and sort of, you know, amplify it and do a press release about it. And they came mm -hmm. to me and said, Hey, this is this story about that. And of course I'm thinking, man, this is too close to home for me. Yeah, yeah. You're going to, you're going to do a press release out of here that talks about how the Biden family has all these brushes with the law. That's going to trigger these reporters to say, okay, now you've opened the door. We're going to write about you. Right. But I thought I'm not going to prevent that press release from going out because then I would be letting my own personal concerns interfere with the job that I'm supposed to be doing. Go ahead and send out the press release. And sure enough, I got an inquiry from a paper, from a newspaper, like within the hour. Yeah. And I, I was ready for it. And I said, this is the difference. This is a story about people not being held accountable. Mm -hmm. I went to jail several times. Yeah. Show me a person on this list who went to jail several times. Oh, and then I'll, and then I'll say, you've got a story. I, had consequences. Mm -hmm. I had to pay for the things that I did. Right. The right. point is, these people did not. And yeah. the reporter, I couldn't believe it, but the reporter goes, you know what? You're right. Never mind. Wow. I couldn't believe it. That's, I mean, that's amazing. But also, mm -hmm. too, like it goes to show that, I mean, a big part of our job when we're in communications, regardless, is not to let ourselves be the story. Right. right. I mean, the I didn't story want that. is not, no, that's like, that. that's something that you absolutely want to do everything to try to, um, try to avoid, but certainly, I mean, fair game, obviously there's, there is something there and you knew that it was something that was a target, but also congratulations for also saying you should know that this is my liability. This is who I am coming in and great for the campaign to, and the, and the candidates who have said, that's not something that we're concerned about. Um, yeah. so awesome. Uh, that's I, really I've, cool. I've, I'm very appreciative of that. And so that, I mean, you say you don't make yourself the story and somebody could say, well, now you've written a book and you're doing promotion of the book. Aren't you Different. trying to make yourself the story? Well, one, I'm not working for a candidate yeah. now. Yeah. So it's not this, not exactly the same situation. And, and two, I'm hoping that when I was in rehab and I went to rehab five times, wow. uh, four times inpatient for 28 days. One time I left early uh, and then another time outpatient, I always went to the bookstore and I just devoured all of the titles that were by real people telling their own stories about how they made it through. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of clinical things in the bookstore and eh, those are, you know, like textbooks. That's not so interesting. And there are a lot of spiritual stuff, which can be useful, but I, I like the, the personal stories best. So that's mm -hmm. what I tried to write. And I hope that if somebody reads this, you know, for 10 minutes or an hour, it prevents yes. them from picking up a drink. Helpful. Yeah. But the other it takes my story. I now own my own story again. And maybe it never happens. And maybe I'm never in a situation where uh, I would need to worry about it. But those opposition researchers don't scare me anymore. Yeah. You know, if somebody comes to you and say, hey, listen, I got some information that you've got a couple of DUIs and some alcohol arrests in your past. I'm going to say, oh, yeah, actually, I wrote a book about that. You yeah. want, would you like me to send you a link? <laughs> and that's a great yeah. I mean, it absolutely you've told the story and the stories out there, too. How did you, though, Tim, writing a book is not a small task. I mean, it is a very big no. task and it's actually difficult, I think, 
I mean, it's, it's hard for me to even write a biography for myself some days because talking about yourself can really be like a big hurdle. Tell me about your process writing this book. Well, you know, it actually helped me remember a lot of things that had happened. Um, you know, I started the, the drinking part and the way that it's told, it, it alternates between the two timelines. There's the drinking timeline, which begins like in high school when I really picked it up and carries all the way through to when uh, I wake up in jail, realizing, oh, man, am I in big, in big trouble in 2015? Right. And then there's the, the political part, the non-drinking part, which that's the timeline that picks up in 2015. So I didn't want to just tell it all in one continuous chronological story, beginning at 15 and ending up at the Trump campaign, because yeah. people who care about the political parts. Uh, they maybe they don't want to wade through 150 pages of my drunk log yeah. before they get to the political stuff. So I alternated <laughs> before. I, so I alternated chapters, mm-hmm. you know, one is the drinking and one is the, is the sober part. And when I'm telling the stories, you know, I would contact old friends and say, Hey, you know, is this how you remember it? I want to make sure I get this right. And uh, a lot of stuff I had to leave out because in AA, they tell you that it's good to unburden yourself uh, with the things that you are responsible for and claim ownership of your your faults and your misdeeds and all that stuff. But you should not tell stories on yourself if they have the potential to harm someone else who may have been involved at that uh-huh. time. So a lot of the stories I, I leave, I'm only I only tell on myself yeah. generally in yeah. in the in the book uh, as as it regards alcohol because it's not my place to tell stories about somebody else so it may sound like if you read it it may seem like that i was like a one-man wrecking crew going through richmond virginia or dc (laughs) or wherever i was like i'm i had some running buddies believe me i believe but uh they don't i don't i don't name and shame them oh that's cool well it's not their story it was all it was all very therapeutic it helped me to write it you know i've been um sober for eight and a half years congratulations at this point and thank you and um uh, writing the book, you know, I, while I was sitting there typing about the crazy stuff that I did, I was not going to take a drink that day. I know that. Yeah. You know, right. Exactly. So, so the book comes out in April and you mm-hmm. just started talking about it and sharing information with everybody. It's called swing hard in case you hit it. Uh, and it's available on Amazon and you can find it there and you can download it for Kindle or get a hard copy when it's ready to go. Um, but now, now that you've written this book and you're going to be on a book tour and you're going to be getting it out there to people. You also have a podcast. I do. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the podcast. It's called the line drive podcast. It's another baseball reference, right? You know, um, but uh, that's the same name as my own consulting firm, line drive public affairs. Uh, And the idea is that, you know, you might as well hit line drives and be aggressive, right? Yeah. And so the podcast, we do it once a week and it's me and Hogan Gidley, who is former deputy white house press secretary and has been on a zillion campaigns and he can like the presidential campaigns going on. And we're talking about Iowa a lot. And Hogan can say, well, back when I was working for Mike Huckabee, we won Iowa and blah, 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 blah. Or wow. back when I was working for Rick Santorum and we won Iowa and blah, blah, you know? So, so I think it's really insightful. We took, we take a look at the stuff that's happening in the race. It's very politically oriented. Mm-hmm. We, we talk about the presidential race. We talk about, you know, news of the day. Um, we're going to take one later today. And I think we're going to end up talking about, um, of course, Hunter Biden. And um, just it's all political, generally yeah. speaking. And That's also awesome. another co- a third coast is uh, Sunny Joy Nelson, a uh, young woman who uh, just had a baby. And so that changes her perspective. She says that all the time. You know, now yeah. that I'm a mother and I have a young child, it changes my the way I view the news and all that stuff. Absolutely. She was with us on the, on the Trump campaign in 2020. And so she adds, I think a a lot younger perspective than 
uh, either Hogan or I. That's can awesome. Provide, yeah, no, obviously. that's so cool. So we have we have a good time, and I, I appreciate the chance to plug that too. Line yeah. Drive Podcast. Yeah. Well, we're gonna we're gonna make sure it's all in the show notes so folks know how to find you and listen in. Um, so as we, I, get I to, would like to return the favor to you. Also, you be, uh, hereby invite you to be on the show. I'd love to be on the and show. I'd love if to. If you come have a have book a to promote, we can do that too. I haven't started it yet. I have an idea for one. I swear it's on the it's on the shelf. I keep jotting down notes. I'm envious of all of my friends who have written because I know it's it's not only like it's a huge process. I mean, writing a press release could take you an hour and a half or two hours, depending on how sophisticated it is. So writing a book right. is a is a true labor uh, that is really something that I admire in people that have done it. So uh, happy oh, to do you. that. Yeah. Happy to promote the book. Happy to promote the show. Would love to come on and talk with you guys. Uh, as a Jersey kid, I have lots of great New Jersey politics stories that I can share over and over uh, again. Yeah, but where in, where in Jersey? Asbury Park. Uh, uh, Springsteen country. The second most famous person to come from Asbury Park. <laughs> I don't know. I think Danny DeVito might beat me out for that one. Oh, him too? <laughs> I didn't realize that. Sorry. Yeah, there's okay. That's all right. Um, mm. All right, Tim. So as we get to the end of our conversation, I, first off, we could talk another hour about all this stuff that you're doing and all the cool things you've done. But uh, I always ask at the end of the show for a recommendation for a future guest. Is there someone you think I should uh, reach out to and have for another episode? You know, I'm glad you gave me a warning about this, that you were going to ask me this question <laughs> before before we started taping here. Uh, I think an excellent guest, and he's from the world of, of journalism, if you could get him, would be Chris Cuomo, who is now at News Nation, uh, formerly of CNN. And I don't know if you know Chris, and I don't, I don't know him well, mm -hmm. but during, during the Trump campaign, I, I appeared on his show and we, we had a little head to head and we we kind of got into it a little bit and it made a little news. People wrote some stories about it, how there was a little dust up between the Trump guy and, and uh, Chris Cuomo. And, mm -hmm. you know, but at the end of it, he said, you know what? I appreciate that. You know, basically game respects game as they yeah. say. Yeah. And so he sort of got it. Like, you know, it's, I'm there, I'm the political guy. I'm the spokesman. I'm on the show. I have a job to do. Of and course. you know, he didn't act personally offended because he didn't that. agree with the politics that was going on and all that stuff. He got it. He was like a pro. Yeah. Unlike, you know, some of his colleagues on CNN who would talk to you like you just ran over their dog or something. Right. You know, right. Where they per they found you personally distasteful because of who you were representing. Right. Um, and Cuomo wasn't like that. And I, I, I think I, he's, I think he's got a large ego. He would probably admit that to himself, but he's an interesting guy. And I think he's generally fair. And I think uh, I, I think he would surprise people to hear me say this, but I honestly think that Chris Cuomo is probably one of the good guys. That's in, amazing. In, uh, TV. I, 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 I appreciate his coverage and that's a great recommendation. And I've had uh, News Nation and The Hill have a show. And so they took over this podcast in July of 2023. So I'll reach back out and see if Chris is available. It'd be great to talk to him. I think he's got some great compelling stories, having also come from a political life and a political family sure. and all of those yeah. things. And now to be a journalist, oh, I, I was not aware of that. Does he have politics in his family? <laughs> How could you possibly not? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the, may have been the subject of what we disagreed uh, on. I, when, I when bet I was on that it show. was. I bet. In yeah. fact, I think I remember now that I've seen it. Um, we, we actually, we, we live our lives crisis to crisis. So it's hard to remember yeah. one crisis to the next, but he I think was, I remember um, seeing uh, that. if I have time to tell this real quick, he, yeah. he was, he was, if you remember during um, COVID uh, on the Chris Cuomo show a couple times a week or at least weekly, he would have his brother, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, yeah. on the show all the time. And we used to you know, disparage it. And we used, we'd called it the, the Cuomo Brothers Comedy Hour, yeah. where they would just get on and goof <laughs> around and tell jokes and all that stuff. And mom likes you better and that kind of stuff. I remember it. Yeah. And so I'm on his show one time and he's grilling me and 
I, I was ready for this where he started to, it was during the COVID crisis and he started yapping about how uh, president Trump was not taking the COVID crisis seriously enough. And I was ready and I had a print one of the guys in the war room had given it to me and I had to print out a picture that I held up and it was a screenshot of the two Cuomo brothers during on his show. And Chris Cuomo was holding up a giant Q-tip, like an oversized Q-tip joking about how big his brother's nose was and to get a COVID <laughs> test, this is the Q-tip that you would need, right? Because your uh, nose is so big. Ha, yeah, ha, ha, get it. Yeah. So they're laughing it up and yucking it up about COVID tests and giant Q-tips and all that stuff. And I, and I said, you're going to tell me that President Trump is not taking it seriously enough. Does this look like a couple of guys who are taking it seriously? Well, so it was, yeah, it, it, Twitter went crazy. Yeah, it was great. I bet it, it was did. like the high water mark for the whole thing. <laughs> That's amazing. Hey, but he took it in stride. He goes, you know what? I appreciate that. You took your shot. Well, and then we moved on. And it's fair. And I'm like, yeah. hey, you know what? This guy's a pro. He's all right. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Well, I'll reach out and I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell him that you recommended him. Uh, okay. And that you nominated not him for the he show. Might. I suspect he probably would. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to do everything I can to help promote the book. I can't wait to read it myself. Tim, today was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with me. Lisa, it was, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to having you on our show. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I love having this show. I love you to be part of it. Thanks again. Thanks to PR Daily for being a partner. And thanks to the folks at Big Wig Podcast for letting us be part of their network. See you soon. <laughs>